This Student Ministry 127 podcast is a sermon preached at the 2011 West Coast Baptist Youth Conference by Pastor Kurt Skelly. Pastor Skelly has been the senior pastor of Harvest Baptist Church in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania since 1996. By God's enablement, the church has seen remarkable growth, and Pastor Skelly is a frequent speaker at youth camps, conferences, Bible colleges, and revival services. For more sermon resources, please visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org. Maybe you've heard the term chapter 11, like chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's a good way for me to remember chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is one of the saddest chapters in all the Word of God. It is the chapter in the Word of God that details the great and egregious sin of David. Finish this with me, ready? David was a man after God's own heart. David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. David penned many of the psalms. David killed Goliath. And yet forever etched in our minds tonight is the fact that David is inexorably linked with Bathsheba. Matter of fact, if I were to say tonight, David and, some of you would say Goliath, but some of you would say Bathsheba. Because that's the way it is in life. We become defined by our greatest victories and by our greatest defeats. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 details for us the greatest defeat in the life of great David. I preached at our home church this past summer a series of messages through the life of David. I love talking about David and how he slew Goliath and David, how he retained his character in running from Saul and and David, how he gathered a ragtag group out there in the wilderness and and David, as he defended God's people and David, as he became the great king. Hey, I loved that series of messages. The last message I preached was from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Why? Because I got discouraged. There was a part of me as a preacher that didn't want to believe it. And from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and on, David's life becomes complex. Some of the darkest chapters in all the Word of God are chapters 12 and 13 and 14. Read about murder and read about rape and read about deception. And and it's horrible. That's what sin does. Sin makes things complicated. uh, Sin makes things horrible. That's what happened to David. Chapter 11, David became morally bankrupt because of this woman, Bathsheba. He was located by Bathsheba. I mean, he ought to have been out in battle. He ought to have been at Rabbah uh, with Joab fighting uh, there against the Syrians. Uh, But no, David was located right there near sin. Not only was he located uh, by Bathsheba, but he uh, looked on Bathsheba. And then he lusted after Bathsheba. And then he laid with Bathsheba. And then he lied about Bathsheba. And sin became more and more complex as, as he sinned and then tried to cover the sin. The Bible says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. 
David uh, concocted this great scheme and, and brought Uriah home. You know the story. Try to get people to think that Uriah would sleep with his wife Bathsheba. That's where the baby came from. But Uriah had some character and he wouldn't sleep with his wife while his enemies were out in the, uh, while, the, while the enemies were out and, and his comrades were fighting them. And, and then David got Uriah drunk and, and the irony of scripture that even a drunk Uriah had more character than a sober David. David schemed and had Uriah killed. And at least for nine months, at least for nine months, David lived with a guilty conscience. At least for nine months, David lived outside of the revealed will of God for his life. David thought that everything had been covered. David thought that he had cared for everything. And Bathsheba is his wife and the baby has been born and nobody knows. But God knows. God always knows. Sometimes we can fool mom and dad and we can fool the principal and we can fool the pastor and we can fool our best friend, but we can never fool God. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1 that, that God sent Nathan. The name Nathan in the Bible means gift. God was giving David a gift. The gift of confrontation. And by the way, tonight, you might look at a message and say, oh, this is a negative message or uh, this preacher is getting in my face. But understand this, whenever anybody confronts us with the truth of God's word, God is giving us a gift. Tonight, God's giving you a gift-wrapped box and saying, listen, here's your opportunity to get right with me. And here's your opportunity to change the course of your life. And here's your opportunity uh, to take my mercy and be different than you are. Tonight's the night. This is the night that God gets into your personal space. Notice with me first, in the first place tonight, a rebuke of sin. Would you look back at verse one? A rebuke of sin. The Bible says, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, and there were two men in one city. He goes on and tells the story. The story was a parable. It wasn't a true story. There weren't actually two men in one city. There wasn't actually a, a man that stole a lamb. It was a parable. You see, the rebuke of sin that Nathan gave to David was parabolic by design. And God chose to give Nathan a parable to share with David. Now, why? Why would God not have just told Nathan, go to David and just tell him, David, uh, I know what you've done. You've sinned with Bathsheba. You've covered it up. You killed Uriah. Get right. Why did God come to Nathan and give Nathan a parable to give to David? Can I tell you why? Because David would not have seen himself otherwise. David was so hardened by his sin that if somebody had confronted him with his sin, he wouldn't have seen it. And so David, uh, God had to come in through the back door and show David a situation that he thought involved somebody else because we always have a tendency to maximize the sins of other people and minimize our own. And a good indication about how bad your sin is is what would you think if someone else did what you're doing? What would you think about someone else if they thought the way that you think? If they looked at what you look, if they had the mind that you had, what would you think about them? And we always tend to see our sin as not so bad as it, what it really is. And other people's sins, we see a lot more clearly. 
And so God came to Nathan and gave him a parable to give to David. Why? Because he wanted to show David who he was. It was a rebuke that was parabolic by design. But notice with me, secondly, not only was it parabolic by design, it was personal in its detail. Would you notice the story now? Listen very carefully. Look at verse 2 again. The end of verse 1. There were two men in one city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. Notice the personal nature now of the story in verse 3. But the poor man had nothing. Save one little ewe lamb, female lamb. Which he had bought, he had purchased it himself. This poor man didn't have much money. He had just enough money to afford buying a little lamb. And the Bible says he nourished it up. He cared for it carefully. And the Bible says it grew up together with him, with his children. It did eat of his own meat. This man had some problems. And it drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Hey, you talk about an animal lover. This poor man, he loved this little lamb. He treated this little lamb as if this little lamb was one of his children. By the way, some of you are strange that way. Some of you have pictures on your cell phone of your pet. You've got problems. Some of you let, you let your dog lick you on the mouse. You've got bigger problems. Some of you have cat, pets like snakes and you call them cute. You've got bigger problems. Some of you own cats. You've got the biggest problems. The only good use of a cat is in chow mein with teriyaki sauce. People get all fuzzy about animals. It's like I live in western Pennsylvania. We kill animals there. And then eat them after we kill them. We think Bambi is the, 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 the launch of hunting season. But not some of you. Oh, Bambi. Bambi. With his big eyes. And little thumper with his tail. And, and I, I hope... I hope little Nemo finds his dad. It's a fish that we should be eating with tartar sauce. It's not real. People love animals. And so Nathan comes to David and gives him this parable. This parable is very personal. He talks about this poor man that has this lamb and he loves this little lamb and he treats this little lamb like a daughter and the little lamb eats at his table and he sleeps in his bed and, and loves this, cuddles this little lamb. But think about it for a moment. David was a shepherd. No doubt this story evoked in David thoughts of his own childhood. As he watched the sheep out there by himself, as the youngest son, when the other brothers were at home and David's only companions were lambs and sheep, where David would care for a little newborn lamb so that the lion wouldn't get it. Hey, he'd kill a lion to save a lamb. 
He'd kill a bear to save a lamb. And David knew all about lambs. And no doubt this personal story evoked in David an image of his own childhood. And how dare somebody come in and, and arbitrarily take that lamb and kill it. It was personal. By the way, God takes your sin personally. It's all personal. And Nathan came to rebuke David and he gave him a rebuke that was parabolic by design, but then personal in its details. But notice it was pointed at David. Would you notice what the Bible says in verse four? And there came a traveler unto the rich man and he, he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb. Notice that. And dressed it for the man that was come to him. You ever think about how this parable plays out? Ever think about it? In this parable, who is represented by the rich man? David. David's the king. David's the man that has all that he could ever want. David's the one that has many wives. And David has it all. He's the rich man. And in this parable, who's the poor man? Well, Uriah is the poor man. Uriah only has one wife. Uriah is the faithful soldier. And so the rich man in the parable is David. The poor man in the parable is Uriah. The ewe lamb in the parable is Bathsheba. Ever wonder who the traveler is? Who's the traveler? Who's the one that comes to David and says, uh, I'm hungry? Who's the one that comes to David and David feels that his societal obligation is to feed the traveler? Hey, the traveler in the story is David's lust. And David felt an obligation in chapter 11 to feed his lust. His lust came to town and said, David, feed me. I want you to satisfy me. And David did what he did to satisfy his inner lust. Back in those days, society said, if a man comes to your house, you've got to care for him. Remember Lot, when the angels came to Lot's house, he cared for them. That was the societal expectation. By the way, you live in a society too. You know what society's expectation is for you? Feed your lust. That's why all the advertisement says, obey your thirst. Do good to yourself. Feed yourself. Look out for big number one. And the society says, listen, if you want it, go out there and get it. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus says. If you would find your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. And if a man come after me, let him deny himself and, and take up his cross and follow me. And the Christian life is not one of self-esteem and self-approbation. Hey, the Christian life is a life of self-denial. David was saying, hey, I'll take another man's wife that feeds my lust. Let me ask you a question. Who's the traveler in your life? You say, oh, well, Pastor Skelly, I, I'm not feeding my lust in that way. I've never committed fornication. I've never committed adultery. I don't struggle in those areas. Yeah, but we all have travelers. We all have sins that knock on the door of our life. For some of you, it's bitterness. For some of you, it's gossip. For some of you, it's uh, laziness. For some of you, it's uh, lust. For some of you, it's anger, but it's knocking on the door of your life. The Bible calls it our besetting sin. It does so easily beset us. We feel a need, a compulsion, a carnal desire to feed that traveler. That's what David felt. 
Hey, a rebuke of sin. We all need it. We need for God to get in our personal space. We need for the preacher to preach it hot. We need for the youth pastor to tell us where where it's at. Why? Because we live in sin and we need God's help. It was a rebuke of sin. But notice with me, secondly, tonight, not only a rebuke of sin, but notice with me the reaction of the sinner. Because we all have a choice about how we respond. We all have a choice about how we react to to the preaching of God's word, to the confrontation of a mom or a dad, to the counsel of a pastor or a youth pastor, or the suggestion of a godly friend. We all have a choice. Notice David's reaction in verse 5. The Bible says, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Hey, what was the reaction of this sinner named David? I mean, after all, David had no clue that this story was about him. David had no clue that God was showing David, David. So what was David's reaction? I see in the first place, his spirit was uh, irritated. His spirit was irritated. I mean, he got ticked off. He got angry. He became irate. He got mad. Why? How dare this man steal a lamb? How dare this man take advantage of a poor man? How dare this rich man act that way? Let me ask you a question. What makes you mad? What makes you angry is an indication of your character. By the way, David ought to have been angry at himself, but David was more than willing to get angry with others. He ought to have been angry at his own sin. And many times people that live in guilt get angry at the stupidest little things. I was in the airport the other day and my flight was delayed. I had flown down to Tampa, Florida just for one day to visit my mother. It was her 70th birthday and I flew down to surprise her and take her out to lunch. It was a good idea, but... Boy, the day was delayed by storms and it was crazy. But finally, I got down to see her and turned around an hour later, got back on the flight to come back home. I got to a layover flight in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there in Charlotte, all the flights had been delayed. And so the airport was inundated with people. I mean, there were people everywhere. No seats to be had. So I was looking around for an open seat and I did notice that one man had, had, there was a seat next to him that no one was occupying, but the man had his computer bag on the seat. So I thought, I'm not going to bother the guy. I can just stand up. It's no big deal. And then this old guy came by. He saw what I had seen. He saw the man sitting there and the computer bag on the seat. So the old man went to this man and said, sir, is anyone sitting in that seat? And the man said, no. So he said, may I sit there? And the man said, no. I'm thinking, you're kidding me, right? Like, here's this poor old guy who wants the seat. This guy, the businessman, saying, that's where my computer sit. But I like what the old man did. He goes, oh, no, (laughs) I'm going to sit there. (laughs) And I love conflict when I'm not involved. (laughs) So, like, I'm taking out my pom-poms because I'm about to cheer this guy on. (laughs) I take out my skirt, (laughs) knee lengths, and I'm telling you. (laughs) Okay? I am about to cheer this guy on. I'm like, give me an O, give me an L, give me a D. <laughs> old guy, old guy, old guy. <laughs> he said, oh no, I'm going to sit there. And the businessman said, no, you're not. He said, move your bag. He said, no, I won't. So the old guy picks the bag up. 
I'm like, yeah, I'm doing cartwheels. Like I'm making a pyramid, I'm standing on people. It was great. He takes the computer bag, puts it in front of the guy and drops it. I'm like, yeah. Then he sits down next to the guy, the other guy. He sits down next to him in the seat and he does this. And he's like, you talk about personal space. He's just looking at him like this. What's this guy? This guy's just sitting here like, <laughs> so what does, the guy, what does the guy do? He leaves. I'm like, yeah, old guy wins. It's amazing what get, gets people angry. Some people get angry because they're inconvenienced. Some people get angry because they don't have a seat. David was angry because how in the world could this rich man steal this lamb and yet David had stolen a man's wife. David had murdered a man. And all of his anger was misdirected. Hey, listen, angry person. You have enough in your own life to be angry about, never to be angry with anybody else for the rest of your life. Ever. Hey, his spirit was irritated. But not only was his spirit irritated, notice his statement was irrational. Would you notice what it says here in verse uh, 5? And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, notice his statement here, his irrational statement. The Bible says here that David said, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Man. That's a pretty stiff penalty for taking a lamb. A lamb back in those days was just considered property. People killed lambs all the time. They killed lambs for food. They killed lambs for sacrifice. There was no sanctity of a lamb's life. Just because this guy had a lamb as a pet, that's his own problem. I mean, after all, all he did was take a lamb. It's easily replaceable. In light of David's sin, this crime is relatively small. And yet David said, this guy ought to be put to death. Man, you got to give David some credit there. I mean, the guy was tough. You think about if we reacted that way to relatively minor sins. Think, think about what if you were pulling up to the drive-thru at the restaurant. Okay, and you're at Dunkin' Donuts because that's where everybody ought to go to the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts. Californians, that's a coffee place that you ought to have here instead of Starbucks, which is warmed up mud. <laughs> and it's only better than Wendy's coffee, which is warmed up mud puddle. So you have to, you have to drive through, okay, well, let's say at Burger King, because Burger King has the best Whoppers, uh, best hamburgers nationwide, and In-N-Out has the best burgers worldwide. So let's say that In-N-Out is closed and Burger King is closed and you go to McDonald's and that's a last and desperate effort. <laughs> you pull up to the drive-thru and you said, yeah, I'll have a number seven, please. Yeah, I'll have the, uh, like the, the, uh, the uh, quarter pounder with cheese and fries and, and I'll have a Diet Coke, <laughs> justification, uh, Diet Coke. And <laughs> And the lady says over the speaker, so, you're, so you just like, okay, you know, and you pull up. And then like this kid 
gives you a bag of, of food and you could tell by his fingernails that he hasn't washed his hands in several <laughs> months. And you open the bag and there's your quarter pounder and uh, there, there, there's, the, there's the, your Diet Coke and you look in and the fries aren't there. Okay? Because a 16-year-old kid working at McDonald's can't be expected to remember three things. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if we could like do what David did? Kill him! <laughs> Take that man out and stone him. He forgot my fries. Take a big French fry and tie it around his neck and hang him. I mean, can you imagine that? David is being entirely irrational. Hey, David, you stole a wife. Hey, David, you killed a man. And now, David, you want to execute a man for taking a lamb. Sounds pretty uh, hypocritical to me. You see, uh, his statement was irrational. His spirit was irritated. But notice that his sentence, the sentence that Judge David passed, his sentence was uh, ironic. Look at verse Six, please, of our text. He said that, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. In other words, give four lambs for the one that he stole. Because he uh, did this thing and because he had no pity. I'll tell you what, not only are we going to kill this guy, but before he dies, I want you to take four lambs out of his flock and give those lambs to that poor man because this rich man is going to restore fourfold what this rich man took from this poor man. Hey, you better be careful how you judge others. Because Jesus said, with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged. What measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And what David unwittingly did, the irony of this sentence is that David was actually passing sentence upon himself. Because if you study the scriptures carefully, you'll find that David paid fourfold for the sin that he committed against Uriah. Very soon after this passage, the baby that was born from Bathsheba, that baby died. Hey, that's lamb number one. And then Amnon, David's son, raped Tamar, David's daughter. That's lamb number two. And then Absalom, the half-brother of Amnon, the son of David, uh, uh, concocted a scheme whereby Amnon was murdered by Absalom. That's lamb number three. David had another son that eventually replaced him in ministry, whose entire kingdom was split in two because the man ironically had a problem with multiplying wives and living in lust. His name was Solomon. I call him lamb number four. You better be careful how you pass judgment on others. It all came back to roost. It all came back upon the head of David. Oh, yeah. God got in his personal space. We saw tonight a rebuke of sin. We saw tonight the reaction of the sinner. But lastly tonight, would you notice with me the remainder of the sermon? Would you look at verse 7, please? 
of our text. The Bible says, and Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Look right up here tonight. Lest you think that you're lost in a sea of people. Lest tonight you think that because there are hundreds and even thousands of people under the sound of the preacher's voice tonight. Unless you think that nobody knows the sin that you've harbored in your life, just understand that God can point at any one of us and he knows it all. And Nathan said, thou art the man, singular, David. I know God said what's up in your life. Hey, David, I'm not talking about a lamb. David, I'm not talking about a a rich man with sheep. David, I'm talking about you. Notice in this remainder of the sermon that Nathan provided a context for sin. A context for sin. He put sin in its proper context. Notice what it says here in verse 7. Thou art the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Hey, David, I take this personally, says God. Look at verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord. Notice verse uh, 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. You know what Nathan did? Nathan said, hey David, let me put your sin in context because you might erroneously be thinking that you just sinned against yourself. Uh Uh-oh, boo-boo, I'm sorry. Or that you sinned against Uriah, or that you sinned against Bathsheba, or that you sinned against Joab, whom you made complicit in the plot, or you sinned against your people. And although that might all be true on the side, David, I want you to understand something. You have sinned against me. That's why there's no such thing as a secret sin, because God is everywhere present. Every sin is against God. Every sin is Godward. You can't sin without spitting in the face of God. You can't sin without striking the face of God. You can't sin but that you don't say to God, God, I hate you. Say it to God. The next time you willfully sin, the next time you know to do right and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do my own. I'm going to feed the traveler. The next time you do that, then before you do it, look to God and saying, by the way, God, I hate you. Because that's what God said. He said, you've despised me. And every sin you committed was a sin that put Jesus on the cross. And every sin that I've ever committed or will commit is a sin that together with your sin put Jesus Christ upon the cross. You think about the next time you lie about the fact that that lie drove the spike in his hand. That that lust that you had to satisfy slapped him across the face. You think about the next time you take liberties with your girlfriend that you put Jesus on that cross. Puts it in perspective. That's the way God sees it. Hey, he put sin in its context. 
But not only did he speak about the context for sin, he spoke, secondly, about the consequences of sin. Notice what it says here in verse uh, 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. Look at verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. He actually did that. Absalom took David's wives and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the son. Thou didst it secretly. Look at verse 12. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Hey, we're so slick and we're so sly. We're so smart and we're so scheming and we're so manipulative and we know just how to get away with sin, don't we? God says, hey, listen, your consequences are sure. Don't you think you can get away with it? Hey, your consequences are shameful. And you might think that you're satisfying yourself right now, but you're bringing shame to your life. Your consequences are going to be sorrowful. And you might get what you want, you won't want what you got. You might get what you want. And there is pleasure in sin for a season. I'll not lie about that. You'll not want what you got. Hey, listen, he provided a context for sin. He provided the consequences for sin. But I'm so glad, are you listening in closing? I'm so glad they talked about the fact that there is a cleansing for sin. Let me show you my favorite verse in all the passage. Look at verse 13. And David said, this is a different reaction. David said unto Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Can I say this tonight? Confession is always simple. It's always specific. It's always sincere. David didn't say, you know, I sinned, but she never should have been on that that housetop. She she should have known better. Oh, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I've sinned, but, uh, you know, every man has these passions. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I've sinned, but, you know, other people do, too. He didn't say, I've sinned, but you know, those servants have no business obeying my orders and bringing her to me. No, when you say I've sinned, there's no uh, qualification. No, I've sinned. No excuse. I've sinned. It's not my mother's fault. I've sinned. It wasn't that I was in the wrong crowd. I have sinned. I take full responsibility. I've sinned. He expanded upon this confession in Psalm 51. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this great wickedness in thy sight. Oh, God, I've been wrong. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Let me ask you a question tonight. Where are the tears? Where is the repentance? We sin so cavalierly, and then we say, oh, God, I'm sorry. You're not sorry. God, I'm sorry. I've sinned. I'm a nobody. Oh, God, I put you on the cross. I'm so sorry. Where's the weeping? Where's the wailing? Where's the confession? Where's the revival? 
David said, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. It's been nine months. It's been 10 months. I've covered it. I felt so guilty. I've been out of fellowship with God. I'm coming back. Oh, God. Where is that? Notice what Nathan says. I love it. Verse 13. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I say this tonight? Some of you are living in the sin of deception. There are some in this room tonight that have played the game and you're making everyone think that you've been a Christian, that you're saved, but you know that you're unsaved and your own pride has kept you from coming and trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's a sin, my friend. Confess your sin of pride. Confess your sin of deception and come to this altar tonight and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and save your soul. Some of you tonight are living in the sin of lust like David did. You're living in that wicked sin and you're trying to cheat and, and get that image, that, that cheap image off the internet. You're trying to stay up late and flick through those channels or you're trying to take those liberties with the opposite sex or you can't have a pure mind when the girl walks by you. Hey, come and confess it. Repent of it. Get right tonight. Some of you live in the sin of bitterness tonight. You're out there and you're bitter against a mom that left the family or a dad that's a deadbeat dad that you never see anymore. You're bitter against a friend that turned their back on you and you're living in that bitter. Hey, come forward, confess it, forsake it, get it right. Sin of rejection, the sin of betrayal. I don't know what it is tonight, but God has spoken to our hearts. God tonight has gotten into our personal space. God has narrowed you out of a huge crowd. He's pointing his finger. It's a finger of love at yourself. And he said to you tonight, thou art the man. Thank you for listening to this Student Ministry 127 podcast. For more sermon resources, visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org. And for information about West Coast Baptist College, visit wcbc.edu.